0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to ask you to turn to uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. If it were just you and me talking this morning and I ask you the question, what's the most glorious thing you've ever seen, attained, or experienced, I wonder what you would say. I know you're already uh, working through your mental Rolodex, but let me help fine-tune the exercise. Webster's Dictionary defines glorious as possessing or deserving glory. Glory marked by great beauty or splendor, delightful or wonderful. There are a great many things that could come to mind uh, when we think about from our own personal interest and experience uh, what we would describe as glorious. For example, I have found few things more glorious than standing beside a groom, as I recently did Trace, uh, when their bride-to-be burst into the room, adorned in white. Um, There's nothing quite like the look Uh, on a groom's face when he sees uh, his bride-to-be. Of all the brides, she's not in the room, but of all the brides I have seen, uh, none strikes me more indelibly than my own bride. She was uh, and is a glorious treasure to me. Do me a favor, tell her that I said so. (laughs) It might be the birth of a child or a grandchild, It might be an epic view that strikes you as glorious. We have a lot of those around here, like the one uh, on the screen uh, just recently posted on social media of Crested Butte. Uh, Gayla and I were uh, fortunate to celebrate our 30th anniversary uh, in Italy five years ago. There were so many glorious sights uh, to behold. Uh, One of my favorites uh, was sitting at the Palazzo Michelangelo uh, that overlooks Florence and watching the sunset uh, on the Arno River. That's not a great picture, but that's it. Uh, another was uh, just to stand beneath uh, Michelangelo's work, David. Uh, it's breathtaking. Uh, or in Rome, uh, his Pieta. Uh, to look at these things just strikes you with a sense of, uh, of glory. Of course, living in the Rocky Mountains, uh, we all know that scenes in life uh, that words or photographs can't quite describe or communicate uh, a sense of glory. Uh, no matter how we try and capture it, Um, uh, we can give people lots of photographs, we can exhaust the language we have, but it's hard to translate uh, the experience of something glorious. We're going to see one of those scenes this morning uh, where you can feel the language being stretched to try and capture uh, the glory of this moment. Now, why is this important to recognize that glory is uh, such an elusive uh, experience? Uh, It's intangible. It's important because we have a problem, and I'll start with this point. Number one, uh, a quest for glory is bound up in the human heart, but the only glory that this life will produce is a counterfeit glory. It's a, uh, to use another uh, dictionary word, it's it's a vain glory, it's empty of anything lasting. It's elusive to begin with, uh, and it's intangible, and ultimately unattainable. Sometimes the glory we seek is the respect or appreciation or acceptance of another person. And that person, uh, because we're slow to realize it, sort of functions as a personal Messiah for us. Uh, We live to get their approval. We live on a roller coaster trying to attain that feeling again uh, of acceptance or appreciation or respect. And when we don't get it, uh, if we don't have it, uh, we're prone to feel as though life isn't worth it. That's a false kind of glory. Or maybe it's the glory of a job or the glory of possessions or the glory of money or the glory of achievement or the glory of pleasure, or the glory of comfort. Each of these falls short of any lasting, tangible sense of something truly glorious that we were meant for. What we need is a vision of glory that's so utterly glorious that no other glory can compete with it. It's a paradox of our life, that we were meant for something glorious, and yet try as we might, we cannot attain it throughout the course of our lives, let alone hold on to it. We need uh, what we see in these verses, a vision of Christ's glory, because it's very tempting for us to minimize the glory of Christ, and to the degree that we do that, that our hearts are susceptible to any number of lesser glories uh, not worth giving ourselves to. Now, the disciples who experienced this moment had this problem, and I think we share it with them. They seriously underestimated, they seriously devalued the glory of Christ. I I so wanted to get up in the middle of that last song and, and ask, do we mean those words that we're singing about Jesus? The disciples seriously underestimate the Christ that was in front of them. And this is a problem that shaped the way they thought, it shaped the way they saw things, it shaped the way they lived. Now, remember, Mark has shown us uh, how Jesus had called these disciples, how he was preparing them intentionally, uh, shaping them for the work of his kingdom. And he would do that with, by two uh, means. Number one, by exposing them to the difficulties uh, that would take them beyond the bounds of their own wisdom and strength. They were not measured. They would not measure up to the task. And then in those moments, he would reveal his gloria through his exousia, his power, Through things that he would do, he was putting on display something that they hadn't quite yet grasped, something that they couldn't see. And yet, for all that they had seen and experienced, it's clear that the disciples continually underestimate the glory of Christ. And so, in moments when they should have been prepared, they were unprepared. In moments when they should have been restful, they were stricken with fear. In moments when they should have been full of faith, they stumbled in doubt. They underestimated the glory of Christ, and I wonder if we do not do the same thing. That if in our quest for something that we were meant for, for something that our hearts are driving us toward, and in our questions and our fear, if we don't reflect the exact same problem, that we are endlessly seeking lesser glories, a glory that we were meant for, but one that cannot be delivered through what this world offers. And we're doing so because we don't see clearly. We're searching for the wrong glory with the wrong frame of mind. And here's the question before us at the outset of this passage. Are we blown away by Jesus? Do we live in a practical, functional, life-shaping awe of the glory of the risen Jesus Christ? Does that glory, does His glory, motivate and move you to do things, to think things, to desire things, uh, to want things that you would never want or desire or think or do if it weren't for this vision of the glory of Jesus Christ that's captured your heart? Now, as we come to today's passage, it's important to remember uh, where we've been recently. Having traveled to Caesarea Philippi, a city known for the worship of many false gods, including Caesar himself, who uh, was the most powerful man in the world at that time, Jesus' identity at last in this pagan city becomes clear to the disciples. Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, will make his great confession. Thou art the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah, the Anointed One, uh, the one God has sent to establish His kingdom. Jesus accepted Peter's confession, but he recognizes that it's, while correct in name, is incomplete in content. They still don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. Jesus then tells them, as we saw two weeks ago, that no one is to know who he is. He's been working all this time to get the disciples to recognize it, and now that they finally do, he tells them to be silent about it. And That's because they really aren't ready yet. They don't Understand. The disciples have a a mental uh, concept of glory uh, that will politically restore Israel to its former might. Uh, They have uh, a a concept of uh, the glory of a king who will militarily throw off Rome and put Caesar in his place. They don't understand what Jesus has come to do. So, to help with that, Jesus begins to tell them what we saw last week that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus began to tell them that suffering would be the path to glory. They just wanted to march on Rome. They wanted to see Jesus walk up the steps of the temple and declare, I'm Messiah. Somebody crown me. Let's get down to business. But Jesus is telling them, as he will tell them again two more times in Mark, that for him to get to the glory that is his, that he was meant for, he must suffer. And that in light of that understanding, they would properly know what it means to be his disciples. Jesus was inviting them, and he's inviting us to nothing less than giving our entire lives over to following him. To take up your cross, to lose your life, to gain your soul, and to glorify God in the process. This is the way. The way not only to freedom but to an assured, certain faith that will leave us filled with a proper pridefulness when, as Jesus says, the Son of Man comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So today, we get a glimpse of glory. Uh, This brings us to where we ended last week, chapter 9, verse 1. It's important for us to begin here, though, if we're going to understand the scene that follows. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now Jesus is talking to the twelve. And what he says is that some of you, having just referenced a time when the Son is going to come in the glory of the Father uh, with the holy angels, he says, Some of you here are going to witness this before you taste of death. All of you are going to taste of death. Listen, all of us are going to taste of death. The question is, will we spend it uh, chasing after trivial glories in this mundane world, or will we see, uh, as Jesus is fixing to disclose, the glory of the Son? So we have to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus referring to? And and those who've studied this passage have offered up a a host of answers. First of all, uh, is he talking about the resurrection? Is Jesus saying that some of those uh, before tasting of death would see him raised? No, they all saw it. All except for uh, Judas. They all saw it. So while the resurrection is going to be a, a second fulfillment, a broader fulfillment, uh, it's not what Jesus has in mind here. Are they talking about his ascension? When after being raised to new life, he's going to ascend in the disciples' view uh, up to heaven to seat, be seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, again, a broader fulfillment, but not what is in view here. Is he talking about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God, the second comforter, will descend upon the church during Peter's message and multiplied thousands of people will co- turn their lives over to Jesus Christ? That's a, uh, there's a pretty good indicator of the possibility of that because when Jesus says that, that at the end of verse 1 that he will come with power, he uses the Greek word dunamis. All this time in Mark we've been talking about exousia a power that is innate to Jesus, but in Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit comes like dynamite. That's where we get the word dynamite from the Greek word dunamis, but still, while it's a broader fulfillment, not in view here, nor the second coming. Each of those proved to be a broader, more complete fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom of Christ in power, Uh, but what Mark is referring to here, what Jesus is talking about, is pointing us to the transfiguration chapter 2, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took him with, with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So this event that we're fixing to look at this morning, it occurs on, on the seventh day, and that's significant because there were six days between the time Jesus said, some of you, before you taste of death, are going to see the coming of the kingdom." Uh, And six days later, this event happens. That's significant because it hearkens uh, to uh, the Old Testament. It reminds us uh, of a link uh, between Jesus and Moses, which we see in Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 through 17, where Scripture says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, like Jesus and the three. And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day... He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain uh, in the sight of the people of Israel. So so Mark helps us recognize that, uh, that what Jesus is about to experience with the disciples on, on this mountain uh, is very similar uh, to what Moses experienced when he encountered God. So there's this period of preparation, six days, it's not insignificant that it matches the Exodus. Much of this passage points back to uh, the Old Testament deliverers of which Jesus is going to be the ultimate fulfillment. But it's also a prediction. Like Moses, the disciples are about to encounter the glory of God on their own mountain, uh, in their own experience with Jesus. Now, the three are representative of the twelve. We know that Jesus oftentimes uh, takes Peter, James, and John with him. Um, they represent the 12, but more significantly, they represent the fulfillment of the Old Testament because the Old Testament required two or three witness, witnesses to establish the truth of something, Deuteronomy chapter 17. So Jesus has already called for this wholehearted discipleship that, it, that it, uh, emphasizes the cost to us of following him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, but he's also hinted at another side to discipleship, those who lose their life for his sake. Those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will eventually gain their soul. Here Jesus indicates that the life of discipleship looks forward to sharing in the glory of the Messiah. When I say to you that the search for glory, the quest for glory is bound up in your heart, this is what I'm talking to. You were meant for a relationship with God. You are meant to share in the glory of the Son that we're about to see. But there's only one way to get there. Now, this insight uh, with the scene that follows reveals to us the most significant truth about glory, authentic glory, genuine glory, real glory, the glory that you were meant to discover is intrinsic only to God. Every kind of glory that you and I are able to attain, the glory of a bride, the glory of children or a legacy, the glory of experiences to, to sample all that this world has to offer its fleeting, it doesn't last even if a marriage or a family lasts a lifetime, in the end, because all of us will face death, that glory slips away. Glory is intrinsic. That means to belong to the essential nature, to, to, be, uh, to, to be possessed in and of himself. Only God possesses such glory. So verse 2 continues, and he was transfigured before them. Verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one earth, on earth could bleach them. Now, the word uh, transfigured is the word uh, we, we derive from the, the Greek word metamorpho. It's, it's the word where we get metamorphosis from. This word speaks in two other places in the New Testament of the essential work of the Holy Spirit in changing the believer from the inside out. Here it's used of Jesus. Jesus takes on in the presence of the disciples a different form or appearance. It's a, a radical transformation. They've not seen this before. This is Jesus in a, a different light. And Mark goes on to, to elaborate by saying his clothing became radiant, intensely white, to give off a bright light, to glisten, such that no one on earth, and the Greek word there's actually uh, uh, the word for a launderer, a, a fuller, no fuller, no one who's, who's, who's trained in working with fabrics could ever bleach this, uh, his clothing white enough for it to match. Matthew and Luke's accounts say that Jesus shone like the sun. And so here, in, in understated words, because words can't describe it, Jesus is uh, the revelation of God's glory. God's glory is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The centerpiece of the transfiguration narrative is presented in typical mark and brevity and understatement. Because there just aren't enough words. Like the English language uh, can't describe to us what they actually beheld. But this is the revelation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike you and I, as the Holy Spirit is working to metamorpho, to to change us, uh, Jesus isn't uh, isn't changed in his essential nature. This is an outward, visible transformation of his appearance to accord with his uh, actual nature. Christ couldn't change. He has possessed this essential glory from eternity, but it's been veiled right up to this moment for every eye to see. We see this in Jesus' prayer in John seventeen five, where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' transfiguration, his metamorphosis in the vision of the disciples, is only disclosing to them who he actually is, a a person who's been there this whole time, but they didn't have eyes to see his glory. So they're having their eyes opened so that they can see for the first time the inner reality of God's kingdom and the central truth of it, that even though he doesn't look like what you might think, what you expected, Jesus really is Messiah. Jesus is God, verse 4, and then there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, so Elijah and Moses, not not only do they see Jesus utterly transformed to to which their reaction is going to be one of terror, but now they see uh, the who's who uh, from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah appear, Moses is representing the law and Elijah represents the prophets. What is this scene? Well, in this scene, they, they're having a conversation with Jesus, and Peter, James, and John are just watching it. And they're going to miss the point, but, but what they should have recognized is that, is that the culmination of the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. Here's the giver of the law, uh, the great prophet Moses and Elijah, both of whom had, been, uh, had met God on a mountain, both of whom had served as great deliverers. And here they are, as it were, passing the baton. The Old Testament is going to be fulfilled within the New Testament. Uh, Moses and Elijah are going to be supplanted by Jesus. He's come to take their place. And so Luke's account tells us that the conversation they're having is actually about Jesus' departure. We're going to come back to this at the end of the passage. But they already have insight, Moses and Elijah, that the disciples don't have. That the reason why Messiah has come... Is not just to sit upon an earthly throne. It's not just to be the greatest man who ever lived. The reason why he has come is to purchase back the redemption, uh, or to purchase back the creation uh, that God has lost. To provide for redemption. Now, there's only one other passage in Scripture where Moses and Elijah clearly appear prior to the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is is the kind of the culmination of all things. We have not yet experienced its fulfillment. It's coming. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Israel is commanded to remember the instruction of God's servant Moses. Do you know where Malachi's at? It's at the very end of the Old Testament. Just before there's a 400-year period of silence. One of the last things uh, that's said is the day of the Lord is going to come. It is going to come. Don't doubt this for a moment. I know that you're not in the land of Israel. You've been driven out. You're in exile. But, but know this, Malachi says, the day of the Lord is coming. So here's what you need to do. Listen to the prophet Moses, follow the instruction of God's servant, and then immediately following that, Malachi says, Elijah is introduced as the prophet who turns the hearts of the people to repentance in preparation for the day of the Lord. The Old Testament's done, 400 years of silence, and the next thing that happens is Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary. This begins the the now-not-yet inception of the day of the Lord. One other time, we we believe Moses and Elijah are referenced together, and it comes in Revelation chapter 11, when God will instill uh, His power in two witnesses who will witness for Him and then be slain before the return of Christ. Verse 5, having beheld all this, who do you think is going to speak? Peter. Peter, always Peter. Verse 5 says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So, so Peter, standing there with James and John, has just witnessed something no human eye has ever seen, the transfiguration of Jesus. There are not words for us to adequately describe the glory of Christ. And the thing that comes out of his mouth is, teacher, teacher, this is an awesome event. Like, we've never been with three celebrities, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Let's build a a tent for us, and let's just stay here. So, in the context where Jesus has just been revealed to be so much more than a mere teacher, Peter's words seem uh, uh, even more uh, awkward or inadequate. Peter and the disciples seem to think that they're looking at a a group of equals, that Moses is great, and, and Elijah is great. They're talked about in the Bible, They've did they've done great things in the history uh, of Israel, and then there's Jesus. These are great men. Let's let's build tents and let's just stay here. Seems like an odd thing to want to build tents, but Zechariah chapter fourteen verse sixteen gives us insight that Peter knew his Bible, because in Zechariah chapter fourteen we recognize that one of the things that happens when the Lord returns is that we will celebrate what the Israelites celebrate in the 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 the, the, uh, festival of booths that they build tents and they dwell in them, and God dwells with them. So again, Peter's fast-forwarding down the timeline and just saying, hey, let's just build tents and stay here. This is awesome. Maybe if we can just stay here, then the Messiah doesn't have to go to Jerusalem, and the Messiah doesn't have to be rejected and suffer much and be crucified. Peter didn't know what to say, so he said the best thing he could. Then in verse 6, or verse 7. I'm sorry. And a cloud overshadowed them. So Peter interrupts Jesus and Moses and Elijah, who are talking about Jesus' departure from this life. It's an important conversation. And no sooner has Peter interrupted Jesus and Peter and John than the Father shows up. Verse 7 and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So the presence of of, of Moses and Elijah triggered the disciples to think about this long-awaited promise of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel to its former glory. And yet, that's not why Jesus has come. The Father steps onto the scene. All the Old Testament symbols of God's glory are present. A high mountain, shining garments, biblical patriarchs, a shadowing cloud, and a voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven makes a declaration that sets Jesus apart from every other person, but in this particular moment from Moses and Elijah, designating him uniquely as God's son. This pronouncement, like the pronouncement at his baptism, prepared Jesus for uh, his ministry. This pronouncement prepares him for his suffering. Matthew tells us that the disciples fell to the ground at the sound of the Father's voice, and they were terrified. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It is to him you shall listen. God erases any a distinction between his revelation and the revelation of Christ. From now on, the disciples will know that every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, whether they like it or not, will carry transcendent truth. God speaks through his Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He goes on to tell us that he is the, the radiance of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. Now given the crisis in the minds of the disciples that Jesus has already said he's got to go to Jerusalem, be rejected, suffer, die, and be raised three days later, it's hard to imagine anything would keep them following Jesus except a voice from heaven, a visual witness to the Son, and the ratification of his ministry attested to by Moses and Elijah, the greatest voices that Peter, James, and John could have heard. Now we understand the meaning of the transfiguration for Jesus when we read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, or the right hand of the throne of God, at the throne of God at his right hand. Jesus' disciples needed to see what Christ means by power and glory. If they were ever going to break the hold of lesser glories that we seek. What is it that captivates your heart? Perhaps you just need a vision of the glory of Christ that puts every other glory in its place. They needed to see this if they were not only going to endure what Christ was going to experience, but if they were going to endure the the despise and shame and ultimate suffering that awaited them as well. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Man, you could underline that, bold, highlight the import of that verse. They were so taken with the fact that, that a, a man like Moses and Elijah was there, and suddenly, they're gone. And all that's left is Jesus. Friend, when you reach the end of your life, and everything is taken away from you, all that will be left... Is Jesus. If He is the hope that you have for eternity, then you have a sure foundation for your life. And He will be with you in those moments as you pass from this life to the next. But if you do not, know this all there will be will be Jesus. Only you will have not made Him your Savior, you'll be distant from Him. The point here uh, is that we can't rank Jesus with anyone. The point is is for the Father to distinguish him. Uh, Only he is left standing uh, after the transfiguration is over. And the divine voice points the disciples squarely to him. Scripture, all of Scripture, uh, the best ministry of the church, only ever points us to Jesus. If anything else is happening for you when you come to church, then we're missing the mark. All we have to offer, the only hope we have of glory, is to point people to Jesus. Everything in Mark uh, that came before Peter's confession has been building up to this moment. And everything else for the rest of the book of Mark flows out of it. Peter's confession is confirmed. What he affirmed by faith has now been verified by the transfiguration of the Lord in his glory. Later in life, as Peter is facing the end of his life, he's going to write of this again. Second Peter chapter 1. Remember, uh, Mark's source for the story of Jesus is the apostle Peter. What exactly did the disciples see? Well, they saw the glory of his sinlessness, someone without spot or blemish. They saw the glory of his significance, that he's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was pointing toward, that he's the culmination of all of human history. We divide time by him, and that he is ultimately the judge before whom everyone will stand. They also saw the glory of his sonship, that he is no mere man, That he's not just a son of God, as some would say, he is the beloved son of God, the only son of God. The transfiguration is not the disciples doing. It's a divine revelation that happened to them. If you and I see Jesus at least as best we can through a veil thinly with human eyes for who he is, it has nothing to do with our ability. It's because the Father has revealed him. To us, true insight into the mysterious glory of the Son of Man is afforded not by human wisdom, but by divine revelation. And the takeaway is that the place where you can see the dominion of God in glory and the saving activity of God in action is only in the life of Jesus. He has made known to us the glory of the Father. The transfiguration reveals the kingdom by unveiling the King. Do you know Him? Have you beheld from the pages of Scripture uh, the trappings of His glory to to understand with the Spirit's insight who He is and the claim that He has upon your life? Well, even though Jesus has revealed God's glory, it remains unapproachable to them. Verse 9, And Jesus, as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, another command to silence, only this time there's an expiration date attached to it. After he's been raised, they can talk about what they've seen, but not before. Why? Well, uh, for two reasons. Uh, One, it enforces the necessity of Christ's suffering. See, they're still taken with the idea of just getting him on a throne in Jerusalem, but he knows that he has to die. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the only vantage point from which Jesus' life and ministry can be understood according to the divine purpose of God. Until the cross and the resurrection, all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate and peripheral. Until you're willing to meet Jesus at the cross, then you will not understand him. You, you, you'll have a shallow view of his claim over your life. A second reason, it serves to protect the disciples in their continued blindness. They still don't understand. Uh, They still can't fully see. They're confused because the Jews thought of a general resurrection that would come at the end of time, but they never knew anything about a particular resurrection in the middle of history. They're fixated on the prophecy in Daniel, which talks about the Son of Man coming uh, to the Ancient of Days, to the Father, and and being given a dominion uh, unmatched. But they can't see Isaiah 53. That talks about Jesus' suffering. The only means whereby we may attain to the glory of God is through the righteousness of Jesus as our suffering Savior. This same Jesus who was transfigured before them had been with them since the beginning. And the glory that he revealed to them didn't start when he started his ministry. It didn't start when he was born. It has existed forever. He was only clothing himself with human flesh. His his glory was actually hidden from them. And and we recognize they didn't understand that because when they see him in his radiance, they're filled with fear. They're they're scared of him. And yet he's the same Jesus they saw a few minutes ago when they were walking up the mountain. Their, Their confusion is about this idea of him having to die. And because part of the revelation of the glory of Christ is the appearance of the prophet Elijah, the, the disciples ask Elijah questions. Verse uh, 12. And Jesus said to them, I'm sorry, let's back up to 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written? of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but i tell you that elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him so in effect the disciples were asking jesus how can you be the messiah if elijah hasn't come and jesus turns the tables on them and says how can i be messiah if i don't suffer according to how the old testament predicted it so passages like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12, they all speak of uh, prophetically of the Son of Man's suffering. So Jesus redirects the conversation about Elijah to reveal the necessity of his suffering. That's very important. What seems veiled in Mark stands out quite clearly in Matthew as he tells of this particular part of the conversation and then adds this line, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So the question is, what does this coming of Elijah to restore all things, how do we reconcile that? What does it mean? Well, Jesus is pointing to the prophet John, uh, his forerunner, who preached a restoration of repentance, of changed hearts, of a seeking God's uh, godliness rather than worldly power and might. And because of his message, he suffered rejection. Jesus is making clear here that John's suffering did not disqualify him from being this Elijah figure. The point is that it was part of God's plan for both the Elijah predecessor figure, John the Baptist, and also the Son of Man who followed to suffer. John's suffering foreshadows uh, Jesus' suffering, and it stands as a commentary not only of this world's treatment of God's servants, but for the, the, the reason why Christ had to suffer in the first place. Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. Uh, as he's uh, giving up his life for the cause of Christ, uh, is giving testimony as to what he believes about Jesus. And he reaches a point in his his words in Acts chapter 7 where he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. The disciples couldn't recognize that this has always been the pattern. That God has always sent help and that the help was always rejected. Uh, The the help was always uh, tormented. The help was always uh, put to death. They've done this all along with the prophets. Why should we think any less of Jesus coming uh, as a messenger for God that he he too would, would experience the same rejection that God's prophets had? And so Psalm 118 says of God's Messiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. The most often heard verse of scripture in the house I grew up in. And my mom uh, liberally applied it to every day. But this day the Lord hath made, it's the day of Jesus' death. It's it's the day the period of of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, there is a glorious God, and Jesus has made him known to us. But we cannot experience the glory we were meant for apart from finding as Jesus our suffering Savior. He must needs go to Jerusalem, be rejected, suffer, and die, and on the third day, Be raised again. What is distinctive about the disciples' experience is that their vision of divine power and glory preceded the apparent defeat of the cross. This is the paradox of the mission of the rejected Messiah Jesus Christ. It's at the heart of of the powerful coming of the kingdom of God. That glorious deity would die a gruesome death so that we might become partakers of the divine. Peter. Writing in his, one of his letters says that God, through Jesus Christ, has made us partakers of divine. We were meant for glory, but the only access to a glory that is lasting and eternal and significant to the Creator who has shaped us is Jesus Christ. The distinguishing mark of the true church of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the cross and his resurrection. Man, I, I love that we gather for worship and Worship is a powerful experience. I love being with people. I love you. I love being able to pastor you. I love the things that we do. It's fine to love programs. We have a beautiful sanctuary. It's fine to love the beauty of our sanctuary. But none of that should take away from the superlative person of Jesus Christ. He is the focus of everything that we do. Uh, Knock out the stained glass windows. Tear the building down. All that remains when it's said and done, the only lasting glory is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We exist to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. This is the primacy of preaching in the church. There's nothing more important than Jesus Christ. And if you're coming for something other than that, then, friend, you're missing the mark. You're looking for a lesser glory. That you will never have. Why? Because there is no salvation apart from these two claims. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Many of us in this room have leveraged our lives on that truth. We're we're risking it all. It's really not much of a gamble if you get just a bit of insight, just a twinge of insight into the glory of Christ. So what does this passage hold for us? It's drawing us to see that our heart is being rescued by divine glory from all lesser and adequate competing glories. I would ask you, what is it in your heart that competes For the glory of God. Friend, there is no one like Jesus. There is coming a day when every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have been invited by the Spirit of God to recognize in this life the glory of the one who one day we will see face to face. Are you blown away? by the glory of Jesus, do you live with a practical, functional, life-shaping awe of his risen glory? Listen, my concern for you is that you not just be informed. I I don't want you to just be informed. You say, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I've thought about that before. If the truth of God's word never drops from here, 13 inches to here, then you can be informed and still spend eternity separated from him. My prayer is that you would be transformed. That inasmuch as the disciples saw Jesus metamorpho, transformed before them, that you and I would enter in by way of grace through faith in Christ and him alone. And the Spirit of God will begin this work on the inside of us where we are being metamorpho. We are being transformed into the image Of Jesus we're sharing in his glory. My prayer for you would be that of the Apostle Paul's in Philippians chapter 3 where he writes that we may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings to become like him in his death that by any means possible we may attain to the resurrection from the dead that we might be compelled by such a clear vision of His glory that we would say That's the, there's one place where I'm going to place my, my rest and, uh, of my heart and my hope uh, uh, for my soul, and it is Christ. The one reason for me to do the things that I do is that I trust Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I celebrate Jesus. I worship Jesus. I will follow Jesus. Jesus is the glory of my existence. Let's pray. Father God, you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to convey the truth about yourself. I wrestle frequently with the sense of inadequacy, no more so on any other Sunday than on an occasion like this to speak of the excellent glories of your Son, Jesus Christ. I rely only upon your spirit to take the truth claims of Christ, to be the savior of the world and to make them known to the hearts of men and women who sit here perhaps this morning or listen on radio or watch on YouTube who do not know you. Would you help them to recognize the good news that we were meant for glory? We were created to know you. But would you help them to see that In a world of competing lesser glories, only the glory of Christ, only his righteousness will help us come to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate the the hearts and minds of people who do not know you. And for those of us who do, may we live our lives compelled by a vision of a Savior who we will one day see. We will behold him in all of his glory and to fall at his feet. to worship you as best we can with the limited understanding in this life so that when we stand before you, having loved you and believed you and trusted you and followed you and worshiped you, we might hear you utter those words to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen.